As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. The presenting sponsor of The Wilderness is Honey. It's Honey, John. The easiest way to save money when shopping online. We get an email, by the way, to, to Crooked Media saying, we're interested in honey, but uh, how do you spell it? Is it H-O-N-I-I? Is it, there's all kinds of spellings. I'm like, it's honey, like, it's honey. like bees. Like bees. That's why I love its tagline for the company is... You catch more buys. Well, yeah, but it's flies, so it's you catch more buys with honey. That's right. There you, you know? go. Anyway. Like Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> you know, the Ewan McGregor movie. <laughs> honey is the easiest way to save money when shopping online. Honesty, fairness, integrity. You know, values. Remember those, John? <laughs> Vaguely. <laughs> well, fortunately, Honey does. Honey's a free shopping tool that automatically searches the internet for the best promo codes every time you buy something online. Honey believes that everyone deserves the lowest prices possible on all the things they love. That's why it works on over 30,000 sites, even Amazon. Even Amazon. Not every price is created equally, so Honey looks out for all shoppers, including yours truly. I purchased something with Honey the other day. What'd you John. buy, John? Bought some shorts on J. Crew. I feel like you should have not said the retailer. <laughs> really? I just think it's going to invite, you know, persnickety-ness. Just full not transparency. What's, the, what's it called? I'm not going to... I'm not going to... I'm not going to poll where I should, uh, you know, buy my honey clothes from. <laughs> it was did, great. I saved, I saved some money. Did you? It just... This is the thing. You download it. It's on your... You don't think about it again after you download it. You just go to a website, and if you're buying something, you might even forget that you had Honey installed, and all of a sudden it's Honey's like, like use this promo code, and you're going to get uh, 20% off. And you're like, oh, shit, great. 20% off. That's awesome. Yeah. So Honey is 100% free, and it's easy to use. Um, it's a return to values for all. It's free to use, and installs in just two clicks. Two clicks. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash wilderness. That's joinhoney.com slash wilderness. You ever say something on national television you wish you could take back? So we have um, we have a very special guest today. I'm very excited about. It. He's the President Obama's speechwriter for eight years. Please welcome <laughs> John Favreau. So can you tell me uh, what your thoughts are on Trump? Are do you, are you what's your? Situation? I, I'm not a fan. What do you have to Donald say for Trump. it? What do you? What's going on? Is he going to win? He's not going to win. 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 Everybody. Not gonna win. <laughs> we have to make sure that doesn't happen. No, I mean, that, that's the, the majority that twice elected the first black president is not going to elect Donald Trump as president. Is not going to elect. Eh, at least I wasn't the only one. I think that man will be president of the United States right about the time that spaceships come down filled with dinosaurs and red capes. The product matters here, and he's a flawed product. I mean, that's again where my confidence comes in. This guy, in my view, is not going to be elected right. president. Well, the bottom line is she's the most qualified. I think she's got about a 95% chance in this election. Our projection is pretty confident that you're going to see 323 electoral votes for Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton will be our first woman president. President Obama will go down as perhaps the worst president in the history of the United States, exclamation point, at real Donald Trump. <laughs> well, at real Donald Trump, at least I will go down as a 
president. Election night 2016 was supposed to be the end of the Republican Party as we knew it. Trump is headed for a historic I defeat. I think that she's going to have a very good night. So the technical term for that, if she's anywhere near your prediction, would be blowout. Landslide. Mm. Mm. I give a landslide. I don't know. You call I would a landslide. Say, I would say a landslide. <laughs> I would say a landslide. The magnitude of the electoral catastrophe for Republicans that is upon them just really can't be overstated. It might be a wake-up call to those Republicans who have existed in this little thought bubble of their own that uh, this isn't a winning form of politics. We were all very, very wrong. And here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Decision Night in America here at NBC's Democracy Plaza. Whatever happens tonight, history now, is going to be made. It just may be she has a bigger base. And, and, yeah. ju and just a record keep now, Ohio is too close to call, Florida uh, too close to call, Pennsylvania too early to call. So those are big ones. It is going to go down to the wire. Everybody just take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. But, but come on, something's got to be making you nervous right now. What is it? <laughs> well, I mean, Michigan always makes me nervous. Uh, brace for impact. New York Times now saying the chance of a Trump presidency is 92%. This is a Fox News election alert. Pennsylvania goes to Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the president of the United States. The business tycoon and TV personality capping his improbable political journey with an unlikely, impossible is now reality. November 8th, 2016 was a fucking nightmare. And some days, it feels like we still haven't woken up. We're learning more about President Trump's executive order suspending immigration from Muslim-majority nations. The program known as DACA is being rescinded. President Trump keeping his word, putting America first by withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord. Virginia State Police declared a local emergency in Charlottesville, Virginia, the Saturday. President ultimately said, I think there's blame on both sides. A 40% cut to the corporate tax rate. Once again, the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality. China says it is not afraid of a trade war with the U.S. Thousands of migrant children being separated from their parents. Children effectively are being put into dog cages. The president today has praised the leader of North Korea, and he has attacked Canada. None of this normal, none of this acceptable, none of this, frankly, stable behavior. How did we get here? How did we lose to this guy? And how did we end up with fewer Democrats in office than at any time in decades? Since Barack Obama first took office, the Democrats, when you count state legislators, governors, House, Senate, and the presidency, they lost 900 seats. 900. This was the biggest turnover since 1948. And what's more, it went deep into the liberal states. It was a bad night for incumbents, most especially if you were a Democrat. Washington lost a combined 317 years of experience. Ask yourself, what have Democrats done to so offend Americans that they only have 11 governorships, that they've lost control of the Senate, they've lost control of the House, they lost 900 legislative seats over the past six to eight years. It's something much, much bigger. It wasn't fake news. This is a story about a party that's finding its way out of the political wilderness. It's about solving the mystery of why Democrats have so little power and appeal right now, even as Trump and the Republicans are even more unpopular. 
I don't want to wallow in the past here, but I also know that Democrats have to learn from it. Because if you think we're fucked now, just imagine how much worse things could get if we lose again in 2018, or God help us, 2020. When Mitt Romney lost in 2012, the Republican National Committee released a pretty honest and brutal assessment about what went wrong and how to fix it that became known as the Republican Autopsy Report. The Democratic Party didn't do this after 2016. And on Pod Save America, we don't get to talk about the state of the party as much as we should because there's so much other crazy shit to cover every week. So I started this podcast. In the last eight months, I've talked to more than 100 people about the state of the Democratic Party. I interviewed the party's critics and defenders, strategists and organizers. I talked to historians, data nerds, policy wonks, and a few politicians. I also made sure to get a wide variety of viewpoints that spanned the left side of the political spectrum. And most importantly, I talked to voters. I approached this project with one fairly obvious bias. I'm a Democrat. I've been a Democrat for as long as I can remember. I was the head speechwriter on a long-shot presidential campaign that defeated the party's establishment candidate. I became part of that establishment when I worked in Obama's White House. And I spent 2016 doing whatever I could to elect Hillary Clinton president. That didn't pan out. And ever since, I've wanted to find answers that I clearly didn't have. Answers that I hoped would test my assumptions about Democrats and politics in general. This show is about that journey. For the next 15 episodes, I'm going to walk you through what got us to November 8th, 2016, and how we might avoid repeating that nightmare. Some of the show is about what we've done wrong, but a lot of it is about what we're doing right, about the Democrats who are starting to win again, and the new movement that's teaching them how. Here's what this podcast isn't. It's not a show about the Republican Party. It's not a show about him. It's a show about the party that needs to beat him. It's a show about us, about being honest with ourselves as Democrats. If Democrats want to keep winning, we have a lot to learn and a shitload of work to do. I'm John Favreau, and you're listening to The Wilderness. Before we can figure out where we need to go, we need to figure out how we got here. So the next three episodes are a crash course in the history of the Democratic Party. The good, the bad, and the what the fuck were they thinking. We're going all the way back to the beginning, and we have a few very smart people as our guides. I'm Theda Scotchpole. I'm the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University. And? My name is Michael Kazin. I'm Professor of History at Georgetown University. Well, the party's got a long history. It really has been around as a mass party since the 1820s. So it's been through lots of changes, but certainly one of the most important values was democracy with a small d. In fact, the party was originally called The Democracy, capital D, uh, to make sure everyone understood that. And people who became Democrats, they were insistent that ordinary white men, I underline white men, should all have the right to vote, no matter whether they had property or not. And that was a pretty radical idea back in the 1820s, because uh, in no country did the majority of the male population have the right to vote, regardless of whether they had property or not. In 1828, this radical idea led to a landslide victory for the very first Democratic president, Andrew Jackson. Quick sidebar here. Jackson's slogan was, let the people rule which led his opponents to give him the nickname Jackass, because they thought that letting the people rule was no better than letting a bunch of jackasses run the country. Jackson actually embraced the nickname and started using a donkey on his campaign posters, 
200 years later, our party has decided that symbol is perfect and cannot be improved upon. Jackson was definitely a jackass, and worse. He was a slaveholder who oversaw the forced removal of Native Americans, and his Democrats would be unrecognizable to ours, a party that was all about small government and freedom for everyone who wasn't a woman or person of color. It was very much a white man's party, and most male Democrats were not eager for women to have the vote. They were quite willing for whites in the South generally to own slaves, and in fact, most Democrats opposed the Emancipation Proclamation, and many even opposed the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery. After the Supreme Court's terrible 1857 Dred Scott decision, which declared that people of African ancestry could never become citizens, the issue of slavery finally splits the party. Two Democratic candidates, a pro-slavery Southerner and a more moderate Northerner, who wanted to leave the matter up to the states, run against the brand new anti-slavery Republican Party headed by Illinois' Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln wins, the Civil War begins, and the Democratic Party finds itself on the wrong side of history. After Lincoln's Republicans end slavery, Democrats not only become the party of the Southern white man, but the political backbone of white supremacy throughout the South. After the Civil War, the Democrats were not as often in national power as the Republicans, and they were a party of states' rights. They definitely tried to reinforce the exclusion of African Americans from civic and political life. They were strong in the post-Confederate South. Outside the South, things went pretty badly for the Democrats. From 1869 to 1932, Grover Cleveland and Woodrow Wilson are the only two Democratic presidents. But by the end of the 19th century, the party begins to change. Yeah, the 1890s is an interesting watershed in, in the history of the Democratic Party because up until that point, you can argue that the Democrats were, at least on economic issues, very much the conservative party in American politics. But that changes in the 1890s, partly because so many ordinary uh, white people, white farmers and workers, were hurting very badly in this Great Depression of the 1890s. And the People's Party, the uh, capital P populists, were pushing the Democrats to take a much more interventionist stand on the economy. President Grover Cleveland and his Democrats got the blame for the Depression, leading to another rift in the Democratic Party, with one side representing Eastern business elites and the other representing the farmers and workers of the South and West. The populist movement was born out of this growing inequality, and it pushed the Democratic Party to the left on economic issues. William Jennings Bryan, nicknamed the Great Commoner, ran as a populist Democrat in 1896, 1900, and 1908. The man who is employed for wages is as much a businessman as his employer. William Jennings Bryan really begins to move the Democrats towards a party which believes in government having a role in ensuring that people have decent jobs and economic opportunities and that there's crop subsidies for farmers and, you know, much more of a, um, a regulated marketplace. And that's an important change. Brian loses all three elections, but by the turn of the 20th century, Democrats have become the party of workers and progressives, while Republicans have become the party of business interests. And this is the political dynamic when the United States enters the Great Depression under the watch of the Republican Party a dynamic that leads to the 1932 election of Democratic President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This nation is asking for action, and action now. Our greatest primary task is to put people to work. In 1932, after almost three years of a Great Depression, the worst depression the U.S. had ever faced, Democrats 
took over control of the entire government and most of the state governments as well. The Democratic Party, as we've known it since the mid-20th century, was born. Franklin Roosevelt talked about much more positive uses of government, tried to put together a coalition of working-class people in the North with the still racially segregated Southern Democratic Party. Most American voters were willing to let Franklin Roosevelt and Democratic majorities have their way, at least for a while, and see what they could do to help Americans. It has been wonderful to me to catch the note of confidence from all over the country. I can never be sufficiently grateful to the people for the loyal support that they have given me in their acceptance of the judgment that has dictated our cause. FDR pledged a new deal for the American people, and he was able to pass a slew of programs that were centered around what historians refer to as the three R's, relief for the unemployed and the poor, recovery of the economy, and reform of the financial sector. The government regulates the banks and provides a jobs guarantee program, social security, electricity in rural areas, and discounted tuition to World War II veterans. Basically, the Democrats become the party we recognize today, with one major and shameful exception. Civil rights. Fast forward to 1960, when a young Democratic senator from Massachusetts steps onto the scene. I was five years old, and John F. Kennedy was running for president of the United States. That's David Axelrod, chief strategist for President Barack Obama and the founder and director of the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. And he came to New York City to campaign. One of the stops he made was in the place where I grew up called Stuyvesant Town in New York, which was a housing development that was built for returning war veterans, and that's where my family lived. And when my mother was at work, there was this woman who took care of me named Jessie Berry, who was an African-American woman who came up from the South, kind of your classic story, took care of other people's kids to take care of her own. And she took me out to 20th Street where JFK was going to speak and put me on a mailbox so I could see. And the scene was transfixing. The street is always a huge boulevard filled with cars. Now there's no cars. All these people. This guy jumps up on a platform and he starts speaking and his voice is booming off of the buildings. And it seemed really, really important. If a Negro baby is born there and a white baby is born next door, that Negro baby's chance of finishing high school is about 60% of that baby's. His chance of getting through college is about a third of that baby's. His chance of being unemployed is four times that baby's. His chance of owning a house is one-third as much. His chance of educating his children is how much? His chance of being a federal district judge is non-existent, because there aren't any. There were social movements which were pushing the Democrats to do a lot of things that Democrats were able to do. In the 60s, of course, the most important movement was the Black Freedom Movement and its supporters. We shall overcome Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome. Our laws, not law, because the arc of the moral universe is law, but it bends towards justice. We're willing to be beaten for democracy, and you must use democracy in the street. You beat people bloody in order that they will not have the privilege to vote. 
You beat me in the side and then hide your blow. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed and stand in his place? President Kennedy spoke the language of the civil rights movement, and his heart may have been with the activists, but he was notoriously cautious when it came to pushing for laws that would advance the cause. He used judicial appointments and executive actions where he could, and told friends that he was waiting for the right time to really take on civil rights. John F. Kennedy never got that chance. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Lyndon Baines Johnson, the white Southerner from Texas who succeeded Kennedy, may have seemed like an unlikely champion of civil rights, but the man used every last ounce of his political capital to enshrine the goals of the movement into law. At times, history and fate meet at a single time, in a single place, to shape a turning point in man's unending search for freedom. So it was at Lexington and Concord. So it was a century ago at Appomattox. So it was last week in Selma, Alabama. The real hero of this struggle is the American Negro. His actions and protests, his courage to risk safety and even to risk his life have awakened the conscience of this nation. For a brief window, Lyndon Johnson's Democratic Party had massive majorities in Congress, and they used them to pass an avalanche of new laws and policies that rivaled FDR's New Deal. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, Medicare, which guarantees care for the elderly, Medicaid, which guarantees care for the poor and those with disabilities, an expansion of food stamps and Social Security, all under the banner of Johnson's War on Poverty. But the Democratic Party's decision to stand firmly on the side of civil rights would transform the political landscape in ways that we're still dealing with today. Coming up after the break, more of The Wilderness, presented by Honey. The Wilderness is brought to you by Simply Safe. I think you need to say it right in the... Here's what I love about Simply Safe. Okay, there you go. <laughs> These guys at Simply Safe, they obsess over details. Boy, do we know it. <laughs> It's why the alarm system is so good. So good. Here's an example. This is, settle in for this example. <laughs> a typical glass break sensor sometimes gets fooled. A false positive, if you will. Sounds like dropped plates or a baby crying. Simply Safe didn't want to settle for typical because really good home security should be really accurate. So they actually constructed a glass break test facility. They ran over 10,000 live glass break simulations refining their detection technology until it was so accurate it can distinguish a broken plate from a broken window. This is the level of detail Simply Safe puts into everything they do. It sets them apart from other security companies. Simply Safe system is designed so you'll never notice it. Never have to think about it. It's that easy and intuitive. There's no contract. They work hard to earn your business. 24-7 monitoring with police and fire dispatch is just $15 a month. It's the best around-the-clock protection you can find. Order your Simply Safe security system today at simplysafe.com slash wilderness, and Simply Safe will also donate one to a family in need. That's simplysafe.com slash wilderness, simplysafe.com slash wilderness. 
The Wilderness is brought to you by Swell. Tackling the world's biggest challenges is going to take a lot of creative thought and debate, but talk is only going to get us so far. We also need action. So far, I agree. Like investing in the innovative companies that are stepping up with practical solutions. Swell's portfolios of high-impact, high-growth potential companies help you do just that while also helping you meet your long-term investment goals. Do you have some of those, John? I do. Each of their six I, I want a nicer television. Is that an investment goal? Uh, yeah, sure. We'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll put that in. Each of their six portfolios target a different impact area. Green tech, clean water, renewable energy, zero waste, disease eradication, healthy living, and John's TV. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you think investing for progress can also be profitable and smart investing. That's what I think, John. Prove me wrong. <laughs> Stocks of companies with high environmental and social impact have actually beaten the S&P 500 for 25 years. Eat that, ExxonMobil. <laughs> That's saying something in a bull market like we've had lately. But it makes sense when you know that today's big challenges will be tomorrow's leading industries. Changes mean opportunities, and Swell is committed to helping you be a part of it. This also sounds a little like a Hillary Clinton speech. (laughs) (laughs) Which you might be hearing in this episode of The Wilderness. So if you're ready to start investing for purpose and profit, visit swellinvesting.com slash wilderness where you can get a $50 bonus when you open an account today. That's swellinvesting.com slash wilderness. Your money's in shit. Get it out of there. <laughs> Swell. Invest in progress. The Wilderness is brought to you by Quip. I'm so glad this is carried over from yeah, Pots of America. This is, this is my dream. The truth is most of us are brushing our teeth wrong, not for long enough, and forget to change our brush on time. That's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing. But not Quip. So would you like to know what makes Quip so different? Buckle up, everybody. For starters... Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes, while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help you clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. (laughs) Next, Quip subscription plans are for your health, not just convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a (laughs) dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip also comes with a mount Ding. that suctions Ding. right to your mirror and unsticks Ding. to use as a cover for hygienic travel wherever you take your teeth. And finally, everyone loves Quip. They were on Oprah's O-List, Ding, Ding, Ding. named one of Time's Best Inventions, and the first <laughs> subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association, those sticklers. Plus, they're backed Ding. by a network of over 20,000 <laughs> dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every day. I bet. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash wilderness right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash wilderness. Spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash wilderness. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Before LBJ, the only reason that the Democratic Party was able to win the presidency and a large majority in Congress was because it was the party of Southern segregationists. That base of support ended with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. But the party's political problems didn't end with losing the South. By the late 1960s, America was in turmoil. The Vietnam War was raging. 
and so are the protests against it. I got a silver star, purple heart, Army Commendation Medal, eight air medals, national defense, and the rest of this garbage. It doesn't mean a thing. I was pulled off and clubbed, and then I was dragged towards a paddy wagon and clubbed again. Of course, it wasn't just the war. The struggle for civil rights didn't end with the passage of legislation, and neither did the backlash, as race riots erupted in cities across America. Several hundred rounds squeezed off, now all of a sudden it's silent. We're fighting one war now in Vietnam, we're losing, as it is. So, I mean, why should we come back here and fight a war among ourselves? As governor of the state of Michigan, I do hereby officially request the immediate deployment of federal troops into Michigan to assist state and local Then, on April 4th, 1968. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. The week following Dr. King's murder saw riots in over 125 cities nationwide. The National Guard was ordered to help stop the violence, but not before 39 people were killed, over 2,600 were injured, and 21,000 were arrested. This was followed two months later by the assassination of the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? It's good. Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen? It is possible. He has. Not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. For many Americans, the tragedy and turmoil of the late 60s created an atmosphere of cynicism and fear, which Republicans began exploiting in order to convince Americans, especially white Americans, that Democrats weren't for them. As we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans dying on distant battlefields abroad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? Did American boys die in Normandy and Korea and in Valley Forge for this? Listen to the answer to those questions. It is another voice. It is a quiet voice in the tumult of the shouting. It is the voice of the great majority of Americans, the forgotten Americans, the non-shouters, the non-demonstrators. The first civil right of every American is to be free from domestic violence, and that right must be guaranteed in this country. And to those who say that law and order is the code word for racism, there and here is a reply. Our goal is justice. Justice for every American. Richard Nixon won the presidency in 1968. For all but four of the next 24 years, a Republican president would sit in the White House. In 1984, Ronald Reagan carried 49 states and received 525 of the 538 electoral college votes, the highest total ever received by a presidential candidate. As you see, except for that, the map is entirely, totally red for Reagan. The 80s were really a wilderness for the Democratic Party. David Axelrod again. There was a sense of orthodoxy about the Democratic Party, a sense of staleness. 
It was viewed as a kind of soft on crime, identity politics party with no kind of overarching theme that reached out to all corners of the country. And I think there was a sense that the Democratic Party was essentially about preserving the things that had already been done rather than updating them, renewing them. My thing was, how do you take the values and the commitment of the Democratic Party and update it for modern times? This is a new choice Democrats can ride to victory on. Bill Clinton in 1991 before the Democratic Leadership Council. Opportunity, responsibility, choice, a government that works, a belief in community. It's what I've just said to you, liberal or conservative. The truth is it's both and it's different. The Democratic Leadership Council, known as the DLC, is an organization created in the mid-80s that begins to argue that the Democratic Party should move to the center in order to win back the white voters it had lost over the last few decades. Bill Clinton is one of its earliest leaders while he's governor of Arkansas. And when he runs for president in 1992, he places himself to the right of the party on issues like crime, abortion, welfare, and the death penalty. The Republicans, ever since the late 60s, had sort of controlled the dialogue. Historian Michael Kazin. Conservatism was the surging movement, surging ideology that Americans didn't think big government could do anything right. And so politically, I think Clinton pretty much had to move to the right, at least rhetorically. While Clinton ran to the right rhetorically on cultural issues, he was more of a populist on economic issues. I I am tired of seeing the American people kill themselves every day in the factory, in the business, on the farm, and be punished for it. And if you will give us a chance, we'll turn this country around. Robert Reich had a front row seat in the Clinton administration as Secretary of Labor. Bill Clinton ran a, a quite populist campaign in 1992. If we define populism as being on the side of average working people and not exactly antagonistic to big business, Uh, But the way Bill Clinton in 1992 finessed that divide was not to be a class warrior. It was to talk about the importance of investing in American workers, in their education, their training, uh, the infrastructure that would bind them, connect them together. So it was populist, but it was actually populist in a way that much of the Democratic Leadership Council, even much of American business, could sympathize with. When he first takes office, Clinton tries to govern as more of a progressive populist. He quickly passes a tax increase on the rich and corporations. After that, he tries to do what presidents and congresses had failed to do for most of the century, pass universal health care. That didn't go so well. People walk up to us everywhere and say, kill it. I mean, the idea of a conference committee writing a health bill, you know, strikes fear in the hearts of normal Americans who say, we don't want a left-wing liberal bill. The Republicans and insurance industry lobbyists run a massive advertising campaign that succeeds in depicting the Clinton health care plan, or Hillary Care, as they affectionately named it, as a big government bureaucratic nightmare that would destroy people's health care. Things are changing, and not all for the better. The government may force us to pick from a few health care plans designed by government bureaucrats. Having choices we don't like is no choice at all. They choose. We lose. In late summer 1994, Clinton's health care plan dies in Congress. 
Even though Republicans are a minority in the Congress, they're a minority with a veto. They have the ability to block legislation, and they have done so on health care reform. After that, Republicans take control of the House for the first time in 40 years. Conventional wisdom holds the party of a sitting president loses seats in the midterm elections. But this was a political earthquake with the fault line running right through Capitol Hill. Democrats lost the House they'd controlled for all but four years since 1932. They lost the Senate they controlled for all but six of the previous 40 years. Not a single Republican incumbent lost a congressional or gubernatorial race. So I think Clinton's presidency has to be seen as a very defensive presidency. In some ways, he was the Democratic Eisenhower, <laughs> that Eisenhower was president, a uh, fairly popular president, during a, a period of liberal ascendancy and dominance. And Clinton was president during a period of conservative ascendancy and dominance. And I think that explains a lot of the positions he took. By the midterm election of 1994, so much had gone wrong for Bill Clinton. Dick Morris, the Republican pollster, came in in January of 1995 and said to Bill Clinton, you have got to move to the middle. You've got to move to the right. You've got to be tough on crime. You've got to be tough on welfare. You've got to be very tough on the budget deficits. You've got to take the Republican issues away from them. My name is Heather McGee. I'm the president of Demos Action and Demos. Heather started in politics as an intern at the Democratic Leadership Council. Today, she's one of the progressive movement's most passionate activists and policy experts. Once the sort of shellacking of the health care bill kind of clipped Clinton's sails, you really did begin to see the march to the right and the courting of the corporate base, the sort of fetishization of the, the white moderate the repudiation of Sister Soldier, the creation of the sort of welfare mob, and the end of welfare as we know at the end of big government. For so long, government has failed us, and one of its worst failures has been welfare. I have a plan to end welfare as we know it, to break the cycle of When this bill is law, three strikes and you're out will be the law of the land. The penalty for killing a law enforcement officer will be death. The era of big government is over. Here's the problem. The typical American worker had not had a raise since uh, the late 1970s. Wages had flattened out. Most of the economic gains were going to the very top. And by the 1990s, this was starting to become an issue. You began to see the stirrings of populism. And when I say the stirrings of populism, I, I'm talking about anti-establishment populism. Bill Clinton, by not addressing clearly and squarely the underlying structural problems of the American economy, flat wages, widening inequality, most of the income and wealth gains going to the top, set up the Democrats for a reckoning. I remember saying this in 1995, and people thought, uh, I, I should never say something like this publicly, but I said, if we don't do something about widening inequality and in job insecurity and the concentration of wealth, there will be eventually a demagogue, and that demagogue will channel the nation's anger into a very poisonous kind of resentment against immigrants and blacks and anybody else who can be labeled as the other. By, I would say, the end of the Clinton era, 
it was very clear in my mind and around, you know, the kitchen table I grew up around that Clinton had done some pretty serious damage to uh, the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. The 2000 election between Democrat Al Gore and Republican George Bush was one of the closest in American history. Initially, the results in the state of Florida were too close to call, leading to weeks of recounts and drama. Finally, on December 12th, the United States Supreme Court issued a ruling that halted the recount and awarded the election to Bush, who defeated Gore in Florida by just 537 votes, a state where Ralph Nader, a left-wing Green Party candidate, received 97,421 votes. As Bush's term began, it seemed as if the cultural and economic battles that had defined politics in the Democratic Party for the last few decades would continue in a country that was as divided as ever. And they did, right up until September 11, 2001. Tonight, we are a country awakened to danger and called to defend freedom. Our grief has turned to anger and anger to resolution. Whether we bring our enemies to justice or bring justice to our enemies, justice will be done. In the days after the attack, Bush's approval rating jumped to 90% and stayed high for months. Every Democrat in Congress but one voted for the war in Afghanistan. Many Democrats voted for the Patriot Act, which gave the federal government sweeping new power to spy on and detain suspected terrorists. And one month before the 2002 midterm elections, most Democrats voted for an open-ended authorization to use military force in Iraq. Here is... Ben Rhodes. I was Deputy National Security Advisor for President Obama. Before that, Ben co-authored the 9-11 Commission report and the Iraq Study Group report. I don't think Democrats, to this day, have ever gotten over the 2002 midterm elections. When, uh, after 9-11, Republicans beat them over the head with terrorism... The world changed on 9-11, and the Republicans, because they were in power, really got to define both the policy and political response to 9-11 in a way that put Democrats on the defensive, and so they turned themselves into Republican light. You know, I'm a little uncomfortable about Guantanamo, but I don't want to close it. (laughs) Or I don't like open-ended wars, but I don't quite want to go as far as saying we should just bring our troops home from Afghanistan. Instead of being confident in proposing an alternative to Republicans, to be credible on national security, Democrats sometimes feel like they just have to make themselves appear to look like Republicans, albeit a little bit more inclined towards diplomacy. And the problem with that politically is you're always going to lose that way. War and terrorism dominated the 2002 midterms and the 2004 presidential election. The accusations that John Kerry made against the veterans who served in Vietnam was just devastating. He betrayed us in the past. How could we be loyal to him now? I actually did vote for the $87 billion before I voted against it. Democrats lost both. ABC News has learned that Senator John Kerry will concede the presidential election of 2004 By 2006, though, George W. Bush's presidency was in crisis, giving Democrats an opening. A short time ago, the president announced plans for dealing with Hurricane Katrina. President Bush don't need to be the president no more. Because President Bush ain't doing his job. 
We got the whole coastline destroyed. It moved now to the story of Jack Abramoff. In the 90s, the Washington lobbyists began showering gifts on lawmakers. Obviously, the war in Iraq still rages. The president just went back to Congress to request an additional $65.3 billion on top of the $250 billion that's already been spent. Where is the money going? To date, this government has proved little besides its own arrogance and its own hubris. Do I have to respect you in this show? No, you do not. Oh, okay, okay. At I, all. I, 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 yeah, it would be, it's going to be better, uh, better audio I, if you I, don't. I, I really... This is Rahm Emanuel, Chief of Staff for President Obama and former congressman from Illinois. I wanted to ask about 2006. You were the uh, chairman when uh, we took back the House. What was, what was the strategy? Walk us through the strategy in recruitment and message. And... <laughs> if I told you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> we're desperate. We need help. <laughs> we were going to win seats. Nobody knew how much. There was enough going on both in Iraq and Katrina that corruption could become a overall thing. And then that became the way to metaphorically drive our message. We were the change party. Washington turned upside down. The Democrats in, Rumsfeld out. Tonight on Washington Week. If you look at race by race, it was close. The cumulative effect, however, was not too close. It was a thumping. The 2006 midterms were a sign of what was to come. After eight long years, people want to change. And it wasn't just change from Bush or the Republican Party. It was a change from all the bullshit politics in Washington that left a lot of people cynical and disappointed in their government. Three years ago, you were a state legislator here in Springfield. Why are you in such a hurry? We have a narrow window to solve some of the problems that we face. But here it is. Barack Obama, the senator from Illinois, the junior senator from Illinois, has won the Iowa caucuses, the Democratic caucuses. A huge, huge victory for Barack Obama right now in Iowa. Let's take a look. Because of you, tonight I can stand here and say that I will be the Democratic nominee for the president of the United States of America. This is a CBS News special report. We have breaking news, momentous news, really. CBS projects that Senator Barack Obama of Illinois will be the next president of the United States. A century and a half after the Constitution abolished slavery and guaranteed blacks the right to vote, four decades after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, voters have chosen our first African... For Democrats, it seemed like a new era. The party won because of a grassroots movement a diverse coalition of young people, women, African-Americans, Latinos, and white working class voters who placed their hopes in a black man from Chicago named Barack Hussein Obama. It felt like the fulfillment of an old promise, a multiracial progressive revolution that the party had been trying and failing to build since the end of the civil rights era. But of course, we were wrong. The Wilderness is written and directed by me, John Favreau of Crooked Media. It's produced by Zach Akers and Skip Bronke of 2UP and Ruth Lickman. Tanya Sominator of Crooked Media is our co-producer. Andrea B. Scott is our editor. And David Fox is our assistant editor. Our archival producer is Rebecca Kent. And our archival researcher is Gianna Jefferson. Music by Marty Fowler. 
Sound design and mixing by Joel Robbie. Tracy Lian is our lead interviewee researcher. Additional writing from Zach Akers and Andrea B. Scott. John Maynard and Dan Kelly were our recording engineers. Fact-checking by Anna Altman. Promo segment editing from Allison Grasso. Agency services from Ben Davis at WME. Legal services from Dean Bahat at Ziffrin Brittenham and Chad Russo at Ramo Law. Clearance counsel is Catherine Ali Mohammadi from Donaldson and Calif. Thanks for listening. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. 